All right, let's uh, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. What a treasure it is of uh, just great truths that you have given to your church. And um, Lord, it is uh, just a just a privilege to be able to read it, to be able to understand it, and you have uh, you have provided it in a way that that it is accessible to us, that we can grasp the things that are there, but uh, but we cannot uh, plumb the depths of it. It is still beyond us, no matter how much we study. Um, but Lord, you you give us a sufficient understanding of it, and uh, God, we just are grateful for that. Uh, God, I pray that you'd be with us as we continue to uh, look at how to study your word, and uh, God, just that you would uh, just give us a, an ever-growing desire to to know what your word says, to be able to understand it correctly, and Lord, the just the 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 diligence to work hard at studying the scripture, um, God, that we would be able to be uh, workmen who are approved by you and who do not need to be ashamed because uh, we mishandle your word, but that we would handle it accurately. And Lord, that um, just that you would be glorified through um, our understanding and proclaiming of your word and God, that you would cause us to live lives in accordance with what we read. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we're continuing our study on how to study the Bible, coming near the end now. Um, So we've talked about why it's important. Uh, We've talked about the role of the Holy Spirit in interpreting the text. talked about finding the meaning of the text, um, identifying different genres, to help us to understand what we're reading, um, applying the principle that scripture interprets scripture, um, looking at the context of what we're uh, reading, uh, considering the original languages and how to deal with that, um, considering the historical context and how that affects things. Um, We talked about steps that you can go through as you are attempting to study, as you uh, try to make observations and ask questions of the text. Um, and then uh, last time we talked about study tools. So we talked about you know, computer programs and uh, you know maps and commentaries and things like that. And then uh, and I left you with a with a homework assignment um, that hopefully some of you at least were able to to do a little bit of uh, work with. Um, and so basically just to apply everything we've learned and try to look at uh, a, a passage in Romans 7 and, and try to try to see if you can come to some conclusion about what's going on there. And uh, so we're going we're gonna to start by having a little discussion about that. Um, and if you, you know, if you didn't, you know, do the homework, if you weren't here last week and didn't know about the homework, um, then at least, you know, do your best to try to, as we look at this, like, start thinking about what can I observe in the text? Uh, what are the interpretive questions I might ask? Um, how can I, how can I approach this and try to come to a, a right understanding of what the text is? So I'm just gonna just start off by reading. I'm gonna begin in verse 14. Of, uh, of Romans 7 and read down to the end of the, the chapter. That's the, that's the most immediate context. Um, there's 
uh, you know, a larger part of Romans that uh, that serves as part of the context. But this is the main thing we're going to be talking about. So, um, starting verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but I do the evil I do not want. Sorry. Uh, But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do the when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So that's that's what we're looking at. And then particularly, um, I said verse 24 is where the... That's kind of where the, the question is, is in verse 24. So does anybody remember what our question was? What are we trying to find out in this passage? Wasn't it who is the wretched man? He said. Who is the wretched man? Was that your question? Yeah, who is the wretched man? Okay. Right? So what what are what are our options? Who could that be? Say it could be. Uh, <clears throat> some people say it could be Paul pre-conversion or during. Like, yeah. During his conversion. Yeah. So it could be Paul pre-conversion or it could be Paul as a Christian. Um, and uh, just to just to throw another another position in there is um, you could also even split up the Paul as a Christian between Paul as an immature Christian before he reaches a higher state of holiness. Or Paul, you know, as a you know, as just a normal Christian. Um, so there would be some people that would they would try to make that distinction and say, oh, well, this is this is the this is a picture of an immature Christian. So the question is, is this is this a picture of somebody who's not a Christian? Um, is this a picture of somebody who is a Christian but they're an immature Christian? They haven't reached um, you know the right level of sanctification yet, or is this? The Christian experience, um, just throughout the Christian life. So, does anybody have any thoughts, any like any observations you might have made as you studied the text, or even if you're just looking at it right now? Um, like, what what are some some places in this text that might point one direction or another? All right, and that's where our story is going to pick up today. Anything you guys have seen in the text that might be relevant to the discussion? I think uh, 
if you look at verse 25, mm-hmm. the, the end of verse 25 especially, it says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, mm-hmm. but with my flesh I serve the law of, of sin, mm-hmm. which I do think is more indicative of uh, an, an early Christian or, or of a, a baby Christian in okay. that other senses. Okay, and it, can you elaborate on that as to, as to why that is? So I think that... Especially if it's Paul and all that, I think if he were talking about his uh, later years uh-huh. as a Christian, he would most likely be saying that my struggle with uh, wanting to serve uh, sin with my flesh, I'm not saying that I do serve with my flesh and that I want to serve my mind, because I think he was a little bit more of an advanced Christian later on in his life, if that makes sense. Right. Uh, can you run that by me again? I, I, I've... <laughs> Um, so, I'm trying to think how to say this, how I'm trying to, how I'm thinking about it right. in my mind. Um, so, so in that passage, he's saying that he serves the law of God with his mind, mm-hmm. which is something that Paul was known to do. He's a very righteous and man, mm-hmm. the law of God. Um, but he does say that he serves. Uh, he serves sin with his flesh. Mm-hmm, right. And I think that that's saying more that it's before he had kind of understood what was truly being said and actually started converting fully to understand okay. what God is saying and okay. understanding and living that life. So just because um, basically Paul would have, would have had more victory over sin than is indicated by the statement, I serve sin with my flesh. Is that? Yeah. Kind of. Okay. Yeah. That's certainly an argument that could be made. Anything else? So even the first part of that verse, uh-huh. you know, uh, can be argued that he had to be a believer, okay. you know, because if he was an unbeliever, he would not have been giving praise and thanksgiving to God. Mm-hmm. So that seems to indicate that he had faith in Christ. And so this is just talking about his former life before he came to faith in Christ. Right, yeah. It's, it's definitely very hard to reconcile the idea of being an unregenerate unbeliever with, I mean, with what we theologically know about that um, with the idea that he's serving the law of God with his mind and then he's praising God for, for deliverance. Um, well, I, I would say that uh, going back to the beginning of the passage we read, that's uh-huh. also very much... Uh, it's shown there it, talking about um, uh, I, I know that the law is right I, I do the very thing but I do the very thing I do not want to do it's one of those it's, it, there, there's a knowledge of what I'm doing is wrong I've just not been sanctified mm-hmm. or I've not gone through the sanctification process I keep sinning even though I don't want to I keep doing what I know is wrong okay mm-hmm. yeah yeah so definitely some things in there that that you know, Paul is describing himself. They don't seem to fit with an unregenerate person. Is there anything in the text that might point the other direction? Is there anything that's like, well, how could that be true of a believer? Well, I, I, I'm probably reaching for straws, but you know, <laughs> even in 
first 24 who will deliver me from this body of death. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe cause to make some think that. Right, yeah. It's like, well, if he needs deliverance, then right. is that is that really a regenerate person? Yeah, that's a that's certainly something you can point to. Am I see anything else? Look at verse 18. You see anything in there? Well, okay, he states nothing good dwells in me, um, that is in my flesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, I mean, I've always viewed that as, it's, okay, in and of myself, I am a sinful man, my flesh is sinful. Mm-hmm. I can't do it on my own. Right. Um, but for him to actually recognize that there's nothing right in me right that is good uh-huh. is a sign of right. regeneration right yeah yeah he he does in a sense um, you know kind of kind of bring in the counterbalance right there in that in that very statement but I mean he does make the statement there that there's nothing good that dwells in me and so somebody could look at that and say oh well I mean that has to be an unregenerate person right well and, and just even I don't even have the ability to carry it out you know some I guess maybe could argue and say well if he was mm-hmm. a believer Right. Of the Holy Spirit that would give him that ability. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Saying that he doesn't have the ability to carry it out, for sure. Um, there's another really big one that I'm looking for. Oh, maybe verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am... Of the flesh. Yeah, there we go. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. I mean, that's the idea of bondage under sin, right? Um, and then, very similar, if you look in verse 23, um, down a little ways in there, he said he describes it as uh, as making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, if you look back at earlier in chapter 7, there's actually a lot of discussion about the law and being under the law and that, you know, that basically in Christ we're no longer under the law, that we've that bondage has been broken. But yet here Paul is basically describing himself as in bondage under sin. And that, I mean, certainly seems to indicate that you know, maybe that maybe that's not describing a believer, but an unbeliever. You guys see the the force of that? So I'm, as I was telling Pastor Rick um, before the before we started, you know that um, one of the uh, one of the commentators, you know, in struggling through this issue, made the observation that the exegetical. Uh, Evidence points in both directions. You can you can find things in this passage that are just really hard to reconcile with the idea that uh, that it could be referring to a regenerate person, and you can find things in this passage that make it really hard to that are, you know they're really hard to reconcile with the idea that this is talking about an unregenerate person. So you have somebody who, in some sense, is in bondage under sin, 
but somebody who in some sense is recognizing that the law of God is good and having some desire to obey it. Um, one thing that I think is uh, particularly interesting uh, da, 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 da. where is it? There we go. Verse 22. Verse 22. He says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's me. That's that's one of the one of the strongest statements that really drives um, the way I take this passage. Because although you can talk about um, an unregenerate person um, understanding the law of God and in some respects wanting to obey the law of God, um, how how do how do unregenerate people want to obey the law of God? What's what's their thought process? I mean, we should know this theologically, right? Um, yeah, more why legal, do they do it? It's more legalistic. Uh huh. It's legalistic. It's not a sense of uh, the gospel so permeating their being that their affections are affected by it, and, and there's a sense of delight. Right. That's a, that's a whole different level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's legalism. It's like I fear punishment, and therefore I want to do the things I need to do to in order to be acceptable to God. Or it might be hypocrisy, where their desire is to put on a show of holiness, and so they're they're following the law of God because they want to appear holy to people. Um, but I don't think that we can square the idea of an unregenerate person delighting in the law of God in their inner being. That's just really strong language. Um, Another thing that I think is very relevant um, is uh, when people will point to this and say, oh, well, this is describing, uh, you know, basically conversion. This This is somebody who's been awakened to their sin, but they have not yet been regenerated. And if you look back um, at uh, a little earlier in chapter 7, you see Paul discussing this. Um, and so you might say, oh, well, that looks like in the context that's what he's discussing, right? Um, so I believe, um, yeah, starting in verse 7. So we start back there. Uh, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not have known sin, uh, uh, for I would not have known what it is to covet if I had not, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, uh, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, uh, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So there we have this discussion um, of basically Paul's life. I mean, I think I think it's no, nobody would even argue this, but this is Paul's life before he's a believer. 
and he's, you know, he thinks he's doing good. He thinks he's he thinks he's obeying God's law, and then he really understands for the first time what it means to covet, because um, he sees that in the law of God, and it's like, oh well, I'm just I, it just causes all sorts of covetous desires in my heart. Um, and so it kills him, and he needs the gospel to make him alive. And say, well, okay, well, if that's the context, then surely that's what Paul is talking about in the rest of the passage, right? And here's where it's really important to pay attention to tenses. What tense is Paul using in that section I just read? Present. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He says, "I would not have known." In verse seven, I would not have known sin. Uh, let's see. But uh, verse eight, but sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced past tense uh, in me all kinds of covetousness. Uh, verse nine, I was once alive. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So, past tense stuff, right? When we get um, down to the section where we're in verse 14 and following, what tense is Paul using? Yeah, it's it's very much present tense. And so, like, if you just look at this passage grammatically, the section where he's clearly talking about his conversion, he's consistently using past tense. And then he switches to this discussion, and he's consistently using present tense. Now, I don't think that's an accident. Um, I mean, it could just be a stylistic change, I suppose, but it seems like this is a really strong indicator that um, th- something else is under discussion than what was under discussion when he was in the past tense. Um, so I think that's a that's another indicator um, that this is talking about Paul as a believer. Um, you know, I, I suppose you could still you could still open the debate about you know is it as an immature believer is it a mature believer? Um, I, I think. Biblically speaking, it's not a great idea to try to introduce that kind of dichotomy, especially if you try to make it two classes of Christians. Obviously, you know some Christians are more mature than other Christians, but if you, um, as some theology, as some theologies have done, try to make it where you have two classes of Christian. You have the 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 immature or the carnal Christian, and then you have the the mature or spiritual Christian. I think you definitely run into all sorts of problems. Um, yeah. So, I, uh, just question, and maybe you know, maybe you don't know, but um, you know, I could understand how somebody could have a theological bent, mm-hmm. and so they they could bring that to the text, and they could then you know parse that out between a young believer, or a more mature believer. Uh, but is there is there something from the text that causes them to think that? Uh, I, I I don't think so. Um, I think I think that. I mean, nothing that I've seen in the text really raises that. It's really just kind of like you already have the the perspective of, you know, 
what, well, Paul couldn't have been describing, you know, the, the spiritual Paul we know who's writing the New Testament and going around and being stoned and all this, you know, that, you know, this couldn't be him, you know. Um, I mean, it's, I, I think that really is the, the type of thing that's driving it or just, a, you know, having these theological categories. I mean, we're not going to dive into to chapter 8, but chapter 8 is one place um, where that discussion definitely comes up because people have often used um, Paul's uh, language of being in the flesh in chapter 8 um, as describing at least two states of being a Christian. I mean, you know, sometimes it's, it's two categories of Christians, but sometimes it's just like, oh, well, you know, I was in the flesh today or something like that. Um, and I, I, I think that's, again, another passage that's very clear if we took the time to study it. Um, that that is not at all what Paul was indicating, and we should never use that type of language to refer to us as believers, because um, Paul is very clearly in Romans 8 when he says, in the flesh, he's referring to unregenerate people. Um, so without without diving into that this morning, um, I think that's definitely the case. But if you, if you read Romans 8 mistakenly that way, then you could go back to Romans 7 and try to, you know, basically read that idea into Romans 7. But I don't know of anything in the passage that expressly presents that idea. It's just, I mean, it is kind of jarring how strong of language he uses about his bondage under sin, uh, which, again, has led people, uh, even, you know, good, solid people, to come to the conclusion that this can't be referring to regenerate Christians. Um, so again, I I think that you know my, I mean my conclusion is you know that this is referring to a Christian. Uh, this is this is the Christian life where we struggle with sin, um, and and I do think it's a it's really important that we have that notion. Um, just to I mean just to kind of to bring that out. Um, I mean, hopefully, hopefully you guys kind of see what you know the 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 force of the argument I'm presenting as far as like how to interpret the text, um, and you know, and it, even though we've already talked about it, it still would be good if you just want to do a little exercise, uh, you know, go back over it again um, and like try to look at some commentaries, try to study through it, pay attention to the tenses, uh, you know, look at words. Ask questions, make, make observations, and, and try to get a, a deeper understanding of it. But hopefully I've at least given you some idea of what I think is the proper interpretation. But one of the reasons why I think it's really important um, is because of the real danger of um, viewing the Christian life as something where you don't have this struggle with sin. Um, in particular... Um, it it really um, I think stunts our sanctification if we look at this passage and say, well, this can't be the Christian life. We can't be struggling with sin this much um, because it's going to make you want to say, oh, well, I don't really have this struggle with sin. And so the thing you're going to do. Um, I mean, basically, you have two options when you look at it that way. Either you are going to look at your life and see that you're struggling with sin, 
and look at this passage and you think, well, this only describes a, you know, an unbeliever or a really immature believer, you're just going to despair because it's like, well, I just, I just don't, I don't live up to this. I'm not really living the life of a Christian, um, you know. And if you if you go all the way where this can't describe a, a believer, then um, you know you might come to the conclusion, well, I just, I just must not be a Christian because I still struggle with sin, even though you. You're trusting in Christ. You delight in the law of God. You want to live as you should, but you just don't. And you you look at this and you say, well, I've, I guess I'm just not a believer. And that can just lead people to despair. Uh, on the flip side, it can lead to the worst forms of legalism, where um, you are so determined to not let anybody think that you have this struggle with sin, that you hide your sin from everybody else, and I mean, if it, if you really come down to it, you're probably going to be hiding it from yourself too. You're going to be well. I, if I admit that I'm struggling with sin, then maybe I'm just not even a believer. So, you know, if I think I'm a believer, then I just, I I can't be struggling with sin, and it causes you to basically just hide your own sin from yourself. Um, which, I mean, that's just a, a great detriment to sanctification. One of the most important aspects of sanctification is that you see your own sin and attempt to fight against it. And if you're hiding it from yourself, then you're just going to be in big trouble. So, any thoughts or questions about any of that? All very clear and hopefully helpful. All right. Well, let's... Let's spend a little bit of time here talking about a little bit of kind of how we deal with the Bible just beyond doing the studying. Um, I would say that what we ought to be doing is we ought to be reading the Bible. We ought to be meditating on the scriptures and we ought to be memorizing so, just want to go over those just relatively quickly here. Um, so, reading it. I mean, everybody knows that, that, you know, it's kind of like the expected thing that Christians do is they spend time in the Bible every day. Or, I mean, you know, sometimes sometimes people get legalistic about it where it's like, you have to read the Bible every day or you're not really a Christian. Um, you, don't want to, you don't want to fall into that. Um, but there's still great benefit from daily Bible reading, or at least almost daily Bible reading. Um, and um, I know that that can be difficult, um, but it still is just like, I, I really can't state strongly enough the value of just being familiar with the whole of Scripture. Just being in a state, not where you just like, you know, read a, a verse or two here and there, but where you routinely are reading through books of the Bible and at some point getting through the entire Bible um, and just just making yourself familiar with it. It's just It just helps you so much in your Christian life and it helps you so much in interpreting Scripture. Um, it, is, it is just so helpful when you're trying to interpret a passage of Scripture and you already have at least a general memory of like everything else that's in the Bible. You may not remember every little detail, but like 
you'll be studying a passage and you'll say, well, there was, there was this one passage I remember reading that might have something to do with this. Um, and it can just be really helpful. So, I mean, it's I really can't recommend it enough. Um, Bible reading plans are great. Um, I mean, reading through the Bible in a year is not something that's really difficult to do. Um, I do know that, like, in my own... Uh, efforts to do this, I have really struggled to find a Bible reading plan that I like and that I can actually follow. Um, I know I've talked to people that they've you know found a Bible reading plan that they're very happy with. So if you have, that's great. Um, but I know I came to the conclusion I just needed to make my own Bible reading plan. And so I went through a whole bunch of stuff to like, okay, what are the things I don't like about the Bible reading plans I'm using? What's not working for me? And I basically just came up with my own. So um, and it's I've found it you know to be very successful for me that I'm able to go through the Bible in a year. And unfortunately, I don't follow it every year, but um, I have I have done a few times in the past, and uh, it's just very helpful. So if anybody wants tips or discussion on uh, on making your own Bible reading plan, or they're interested in mine, then you're welcome to talk to me about that. Um, Meditation. That's the question. What is meditation? That's a that's a word that we use in today's society. Sometimes means different things. When we talk about meditating on the Word of God, what are we talking about? And what are we not talking about? All right. So when I think of meditating on the Word of God, it's it's reading it, or starting with reading it, making sure you're familiar with it, praying over the passage, mm-hmm. praying while you're reading it, really just repetitively going over it and praying about it mm-hmm. uh, to see, uh, j- just letting, letting, probably in summer, but really getting that passage or verse uh, Memorize so you really understand what it's there. Spending a lot of time mm-hmm. uh, going over it repetitively and praying to see what God uh, is trying to say through it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, you just you're you're going over it. You're thinking deeply about it. You're you're really contemplating it. Um, you know, and obviously involves prayer as you as you really try to grasp what it is that that that, that passage says. It's not what the world says meditation is. But uh-huh. It's interesting because biblical meditation is filling your mind mm-hmm. with the Word of God, whereas in, I guess, our culture, it's the opposite. It's emptying your mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's just what they say, empty your mind. Right. So it's actually the opposite of yeah. what you hear in terms of like transcendental meditation or something. Right. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's definitely uh, that's definitely something that like can be confusing because that is the kind of the notion is that your that meditation is is emptying your mind and trying to just you know, block everything out, but it's your you are filling your mind. You're filling your mind with the word of God. So yeah. That's absolutely true. Well, hey Chris, to to your point about reading the Bible every day, mm-hmm. my wife and I actually were having this discussion and she's like, well, where does it say I hear preachers say all the time you're supposed to read the Bible every day. Where does it say that? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said, Well, it doesn't really, you know, and uh, you know, but and, and I think in some sense we've almost done ourselves a disfavor you know, by saying that, because you know, David talks in, in greater and more grandiose 
ideas about the Word of God. I love your Word. I med- you know I meditate on your Word, and there's just sort of something about you know it just and you know I think about your Word all day long, and you mm-hmm. know and I think when we think about just reading your Bible every day, it very easily becomes just that mm-hmm. checklist thing, and I've done it. I'm in my duty, and I can walk away. Whereas it seems like what the Scripture talks about is more of. Uh, your affections are set upon the Word of God, but you know that can't happen unless you read it. Right. So you know you do read it, but I guess what I'm saying is I think what the Bible says about it is much greater than just read the Bible every day. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So. No, that's that is an excellent point because yeah, you again you don't you don't want Bible reading to become a legalistic thing. You don't want it to be just like well I you know I check my box. Um, you you want it it needs to be tied to meditation um, and it's. It's something that, yeah, we should delight in the law of God and be, be reading it regularly and thinking about it all the time. Um, and so, I mean, that is that is what we see scripturally. So, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Um, but but I, do, I do still think there's, like, some value in, like, using a Bible reading plan and just to kind of get yourself on track to try to get through the whole thing. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I would argue you will never get to delighting in the word and you know meditating all that if you never spend time in the word you know so I would agree I just think sometimes we can set the bar so low that we miss you know we just get the low hanging fruit we don't you know we don't really get to enjoy the greatness of yeah and I think that's why a lot of people struggle to read their bible every day because it is just sort of a legalistic thing as opposed to truly fellowshipping with the lord and delighting in him and worshiping him and Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And I know like for myself and I've, I've heard others express this idea as well is that um, a lot of times like there's there's like a, a reluctance to read the word of God just because it's just like it's a lot of work. It uh, can fix me of my sin. It's, you know, it's like there's all sorts of things that make me like kind of not want to. And then when I make myself do it, suddenly I'm just like. Wow, this is great! You know, it's like, why, why was I, why was I putting this off? You know, um, so uh, I mean, that that can often be a thing. So yeah, I mean, we do kind of need to prod ourselves sometimes, but um, but yeah, the, I mean, the idea is definitely that we should be delighting in the law of God. We should be delighting in His word. So yeah. um, let's see. We are running out of time, so I don't want to dwell and stuff. But there's there's obviously passages that talk about uh, meditating on the Word of God and we've uh, we've talked about those um, in past lessons as well. So um, and then memorizing the Word of God. Um, I mean that just kind of goes along with uh, meditation. Um, even when Mark was talking about meditation he you know threw in the idea of memorization. Um, if you're going to meditate on the Word of God, unless you have it literally right in front of you, then you're going to have to memorize it. Um, and uh, also, um, as you're struggling with sin, um, having Scripture in your memory is going to be very helpful because those things are going to come to your mind and are going to help to, you know, to convict you and guard you against. Uh, the, the whatever sin it is that you're facing that you're you're facing temptation to to commit um, and uh, also when you're preaching the gospel um, if you're talking to somebody if you're sharing your faith 
Um, you can do it with an open Bible, and there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, a lot of times it's just a lot more convenient if you can just quote verses from memory. Um, you may not have your Bible with you. I mean, obviously in our day, we, you know, we, we have our phones, and so we basically do always have our, our Bibles with us, but... Um, but it isn't necessarily super easy to just, you know, look up everything that you want to you want to say when you're talking to people. So it's really handy to have, um, you know, the Bible memorized. I mean, not the whole Bible, obviously. I mean, that'd be great, but you know, that's it's not realistic. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's very useful, and you know, it's like especially if you get into like disputes about you know what the Bible teaches about certain things. Uh, Get into apologetic discussions. Um, having particular Bible passages memorized is just very, very useful. Um, so there's all sorts of reasons that we should memorize. Um, and I do want to talk just a little bit about how to do it, because um, I know that, I, I mean, I probably had a somewhat strange uh, early Christian experience that I probably isn't mirrored by a lot of people's, but... Um, I, I didn't have anybody to teach me how to memorize the Word of God. Um, nobody had ever taught me how, really how to memorize anything, and I just, like, but I still, I, I didn't know that I was supposed to memorize, and so I would attempt to memorize and was somewhat successful. And then later I went through a class where you were actually taught how to memorize, and I was like, wow, um, that's way easier than what I've been doing. So it was like, I really wish somebody had told me how to do it earlier, so I do want to talk about that. Um, so, um, what I would say, I, I mean, the thing that I was doing was just like, I would just like, whenever I thought about it and had time, I would look at whatever passage I was trying to memorize, and I would just like, just go over it and over it and over it, and you know, and I'm, you know, I might spend an hour just working on it, um, and then I might not really have time to mess with it again for like another week or something like that. Um, and, you know, and then, you know, then I would work on it again, and um, it worked, but it was really rough. Um, and so the thing that uh, that I was taught that became really helpful is basically don't spend so much time on it, but be more regular at it. And so you can spend five minutes memorizing a verse and then go back the next day and review it, make sure you got it right. And then go back the next day and review it, make sure you got it right. And it's like, you know, I would spend a lot less time total working on it, and I found it way easier. So if you just review it every single day, um, that just makes it much easier. Um, so, I mean, that's the, that's the main thing I want to say, but I, just, I do want to just go over a couple other things here. So... Uh, selecting passages, um, you can find lists of re- recommended verses for memorization. Um, you can look at references that are found in the Confession or the Catechism. Um, as you read the Bible, you may see something you want to memorize. You can make a note of that. Um, just look for passages that will be helpful. Um, think about um, you know passages that are going to be useful in sharing the gospel and fighting against sin and things like that. Um, as you as you work on it, uh, do your best to understand what the text says. What does it mean? You know, it's kind of the stuff we've talked about here. Um, know the context of it. You know, don't just memorize a verse out of context. I've seen people do that, and it can be um, kind of embarrassing sometimes. Um, 
and as you're working on it, um, read the passage out loud to yourself. Uh, repeat it until you think you can say it by memory, and then without looking, try to quote it. Um, and then look to see how you did. Um, if you can get somebody to, to work with you and check you, that's that's even better. Um, you can break up what you're doing into smaller pieces. If you're if you're wanting to memorize a larger passage, you know, then you can just kind of like memorize a piece of it and then just add more as you go. Um, making flashcards is very useful. Um, there's also you, know, you can do it on your phone. There's there's apps that let you do it. Um, and um, you know it's it really is good if you're wanting to do a bunch of memorization if you could have an accountability partner where both of you are memorizing things they don't even have to be the same things but um, but basically where you are meeting regularly to go over the verses and the other you know you can check each other to make sure you guys are are memorizing things uh, correctly um, and um, I would say that you want to review what you're memorizing daily for at least two weeks. Um, longer is fine, but um, I'd say at least two weeks. Go over it every single day, and then uh, and then after that, and once you once you don't think you need to do it every day, still do it weekly for I would say two to three months, um, just to really try to get it. Um, in your head, um, and uh, it seems like you can safely add a passage or two every week. So if you really want to do lots of memorization, then you can just start this process where you know every week you add a passage or two, and you just you know you just keep doing your your verses every day. And as it gets farther from the time you started memorizing it, you can switch it to a weekly review. But you can just build up this whole repertoire of verses that you're uh, that you're memorizing, um, and um, don't limit yourself to just scripture. Um, this works for the catechism too. You know, you can you can memorize the the catechism doings, um, which is also very useful. So. Um, yeah, we are out of time. So, any thoughts or questions as I, I mean, just kind of rapid-fired um, memorization stuff at you there, but hopefully that's helpful. Any any final thoughts or comments? Okay. Well, let's uh, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, again, what a what a privilege it is to read your Word, and I God, I, I pray that as, as Pastor Rick said, that we would be. Uh, like David, that we would just delight in your law, that we would meditate on it day and night, um, that uh, it wouldn't be just a a duty that we uh, perform, but that it would be something that we just just long for. We we just uh, seek to devour your word. And God, I pray that you would give us understanding, that we would uh, really know what it is that you are saying to us, that... um, God, you would, through your word, just continue to transform us, that our minds would be renewed, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, God, just that we would be uh, people who uh, who live as we should, that we would be people who, um, God, who represent what you have called your church to be, uh, people of your word. That that would be the just the most important thing, 
and our thoughts that we would uh, not be so concerned with uh, the the daily responsibilities that we face, the the hobbies that we enjoy, the uh, the anxieties for the the things in the world at large, but God, that we would uh, just rest on the solid rock that is uh, your word and that we would truly trust in you and the promises that you have made to us. And uh, God, just that we would continue to glorify you through what we do. Pray in Christ's name.